Hey guys, this is Christopher Sean, aka Kazuriziono, and you are listening to Radio Dakar. Broadcasting across the galaxy, you're listening to Radio Dakar, a Star Wars podcast dedicated to Resistance, The Mandalorian, and more. Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Radio Dakar. I'm your host, Doug Brooks, and this is my review of Star Wars, The Mandalorian. Chapter 16, The Rescue. Uh, we are at the Season 2 finale. Uh, it's been a quick eight weeks uh, getting back into the show. Uh, we've got to say goodbye to it for a little while, but uh, there'll be more Star Wars to come. Uh, but there's plenty to talk about uh, as far as what happened. There was so much speculation and guessing as far as what who who would be in the episode as far as would they be helped by a Jedi who would come for Grogu? Would they save Grogu? Uh, What would happen with Moff Gideon? Just so many questions and most of them are answered, but a few setups for later on. Uh, But we'll go ahead and talk about all of that. Uh, This episode uh, directed by Peyton Reed, who also directed chapter 10. The Passenger, uh, of course, from Ant-Man, a fame if you're Marvel fans. And this one was uh, written, of course, by John Favreau, who at this point has done 12 of the 16 episodes. Um, yeah, as, as I get into it, you can tell that John and... Uh, executive producer Dave Filoni really got into their toys from the from the Kenner days for this episode, uh, but it was a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, some people say fan service. I mean, if it fits the narrative of the story and it's you know it's Star Wars, these things are going to show up, and as long as it's logical and you know not shoehorned in like Doctor Epizon being on. Jetta, you know, it, it's all good. Um, uh, before I get into the episode, I will, um, you know, um, acknowledge the recent passing of Jeremy Bullock, who was the originator of the Boba Fett role. Um, I believe when I talked about the passing of Dave Prowse a couple of weeks ago on the on the show, I mentioned that I actually met both of them at the same Comic Con. Um, it was here in Knoxville back in 2007. It was either six, 2006 or seven. Pretty sure it was seven. Um, yeah, but I mean, think about it. That was way before the Disney purchase. So after episode three, um, yeah, you just hoped you got to meet some actors from the old movies uh, before interest in Star Wars totally went away, but my how th- things have changed. Um, but you know, I told the story about meeting David Prowse, but uh, Jeremy Bullock um, actually got was getting an autograph for 
one of my wife's best friends who is a huge Boba Fett fan. Um, and I, I don't think she had ever gotten his autograph, but I thought I'm, if he's there, I, it would be a cool thing to do for. Um, so at one of the other booths, I bought a Boba Fett comic book with a really nice cover. And I had him autograph that and make it out to her. So uh, that was my one chance to meet him. Uh, just wonderful person, uh, very, very welcoming and friendly. And you know, of course, he played. He he was the guy under the helmet for Boba Fett. Didn't do the voice, but um, in Empire, he was also one of the, uh, the Imperial officer who was, as they were escorting uh, Leia and Chewie um, away from the the carbon freeze chamber on Bespin. He was like the one who grabbed her and was trying to pull her away when Luke showed up. Um, but that was him. He was also uh, one of the pilots. It's, it's not the Tenevi 4. I think it was the Tenevi 3. Anyway, Belorgana's ship in, in Revenge of the Sith. Um, you know, he came back to do a cameo as that pilot. So I mean, he got to play a few different roles in Star Wars. And he was just a wonderful ambassador from the movies uh, after all these years. Um, but he passed away uh, recently. So wanted to acknowledge him and you know, thank him for everything he did uh, for, for the fans. And as it turns out, I mean, this episode was a wonderful homage to him without having to say it uh, just because of, you know, we've got Boba Fett back. Of course, played by Tamora Morrison now. Um, but you know, his legacy lives on, and in some ways, he's even a stronger character than he was uh, back when he was just, uh, you know, the cult fan favorite. Speaking of Boba Fett, let's get right into the episode because I mean, the first shot we get is a Lambda class shuttle making his first appearance on the show, being chased by Slave One. And I mean, yeah, you could tell, you know, you could just picture Dave and John playing with the, playing with the toys. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if Slave One came after an Imperial shuttle? So that's what we get. I mean, that's probably something I would have done as a kid. I had both the toys and actually I, the little Han and the Padawan here, uh, they still play with my Imperial shuttle. That was one of the best toys ever uh, from the Kenner line. But, you know, they're doing it because Dr. Pershing's on board. So, um, of Tahi, this is the first time back uh, since Chapter 3, other than the hologram appearance a few weeks back. Uh, so good to see him back. He had a pretty good role in this episode. And I did like that the, the pilots uh, of the shuttle, they were dressed like Bodhi Rook. So it's more of the casual cargo pilot type outfits than oh, like a helmeted stormtrooper esque pilot, you know, that sort of thing. So a nice like visual callback to Rogue One. And then with the pilots, you know, you kind of saw like a difference of philosophy. And it's something I've kind of touched on before, like 
this imperial remnant who's you know existing five years after the Battle of Endor, four years after the full defeat of the Empire and the you know signing of the uh, the concordance that ended the war. You know, are they are these people who are like lifelong Imperials who are holding on to the ideals and are there people who have been recruited since then and don't really get it, but they're, they're just trying to do it because maybe they believe in it and they, or it's just a job for them. Uh, you kind of get that from the pilots here. You know, the one who just didn't want any trouble and um, the other one who was, you know, willing to kill uh, Dr. Pershing to keep him out of New Republic hands. I like that continuing theme, not only of, you know, the rise of this Imperial remnant to strength, but also, you know, what the people within this remnant are like. So, yeah, the cold open was good. Um, yeah, Kara's still there. Um, I'll, I'll get to more about that in a minute, but at least we find out what she had had the uh, the tattoo. Uh, even though it's the rebel symbol, it's uh, a tear to represent the destruction of Alderaan. Well, it also explains how Carson Tiva um, would know, know that other than looking up her file uh, when he was on Navarro. So anyway, you know, they get the information that uh, Grogu is on Moff Gideon's cruiser. Um, but, you know, they still want to take uh, Dr. Pershing prisoner to get more information out of him. I did like uh, when Kara shoots right past Dr. Pershing and takes out the pilot and he's grabbing his ear. I, I, it makes me think that there's a similar scene in The Fugitive the Harrison Ford movie where there's um, the marshals raid a house and there's a hostage situation going on and one of the marshals gets grabbed and uh, is being held at gunpoint and then Tommy Lee Jones uh, character um, shoots past him to take out the uh, the criminal and he's complaining about it. he's got hearing losses in that ear uh, it's, got, it's, a, it's a humorous scene in the movie I assure you Please, if you haven't seen The Fugitive, it, it's it's a tremendous, tremendous movie. Just watch it. Plus, it's got Harrison Ford. Um, so, I, you know, I wondered if, like, it, him grabbing his ear uh, was an homage to The Fugitive. Uh, so after they've grabbed Pershing, uh, Slave One heads off to an unnamed planet which Rogue One has spoiled us. We need planet names on screen all the time. Uh, but, you know, it's an industrial type planet. There's some refineries there. There's some grasslands. Um, they kind of look to me like, well, you know, I thought maybe, well, at first I thought maybe it's Lothal. Um, it kind of looks like the classic interpretation of Dantooine, uh, but they don't say. So anyway, it's a you know neat looking planet, um, especially considering you know since the climax of the whole episode takes place on the cruiser, you know we don't get much 
and not including the end credits, you know, this is the only part of the episode where we're on a planet. So, you know, it's neat. That's yet a different type of environment. And it's got, you know, the little restaurant bar or whatever. Um, and so, I mean, this is totally forgotten almost because of everything else that happened in the episode. But we get a Mandalorian gauntlet fighter in live action for the first time. You know, we don't actually see it fly and have the wing configuration, but, you know, it's the one that's parked there with the wings pointed straight up because they fold up. Um, and it pretty much parks on its thrusters. Um, so yeah, when they, when they landed, when Slave 1 landed right next to it, I was like, holy crap. And, you know, we get that shot later where it's Slave 1 a Mandalorian gauntlet fighter and an Imperial shuttle. And it's just like, a, you know, if you're a vehicle geek, I mean, that's three of the best looking ones in the whole entirety of star Wars. And they're all in the same shot. That was pretty cool. Hopefully next season, we'll get to see some gauntlet fighters in action. I mean, watch Clone Wars or rebels. If you know, if you want to see them. Hey, we've got, we've got a few months. Watch Clone Wars and rebels, please. If you haven't, I will say, and especially with later on with the whole thing, the thing with the dark saber. I mean, uh, John Favreau and Dave Filoni have made this show really accessible to people who have not watched any of the animated stuff. Like, there's obviously animated influences, but they're but they explain what you need to know about them. I like everything with Ahsoka and Bo-Katan's first appearance, and then I mean. Moff Gideon gives you all the exposition on the Darksaber that you need later on. So, you know, you know they did a good job making the show easy to watch for non-fans, so to say. But then also planting those seeds to where, you know, it'll pique your interest and make you want, want to go back and watch Clone Wars and Rebels. You know, the Resistance also is a wonderful show, obviously. Um, but, you know, since this is in the future, it doesn't reference that. And then for those of us who have watched them, you know, the, we're like, oh, it's that it's that thing that we've already seen. You know, so that's it. It's been a show for everybody. It's worked out really well. Uh, so then we get the incredible scene. You know, Bo-Katan and Cosca Reeves are there. Uh, so Kate, uh, Katie Sackhoff and uh, Mercedes Vernado um, are back for uh, this season, even though uh, Mercedes said, you know, chapter 11 was her only appearance. She, she was holding back on us, but good thing. Thankfully. So uh, no ax woes. I don't know where he is. Maybe he's, Maybe they put him in charge of that one Gazanti cruiser that they already stole. You know, and so Bo and Costco uh, here scouting or something. But you've got them, and then you've got Din Djarin and Boba Fett all in the same scene. And, I mean, it's just an incredible scene. Um,. No, and then you've got the whole thing, like, you know, 
instantly Bo-Katan makes the remark about, you know, it's not just about bounty hunters. So you know, she must recognize Boba Fett by reputation, but as soon as he talks and she snaps around, you could tell, I mean, she recognizes a clone voice and that, that, that's just an incredible callback. Um, so you wonder, did she know before now that Boba Fett was a clone? Oh, although she probably did because Death Watch and those loyalists knew about Jango Fett. Um, Anyway, it's got to be weird. Like, unless you've seen Captain Rex recently, it's got to be weird hearing that voice. That you've, and as she says, she's heard it a thousand times. You know, to hear that voice after all these years. Um, I mean, likely when most of the clones have died out from advanced old age, whereas Boba aged naturally. Um, you know, that was great. It's just like last week when Boba was saying, "Let's just say the Empire might recognize my face." I mean, just a, you know, we didn't have that in Empire and Jedi because we didn't know that he was cloned yet. But now that he's in, back in live action, you're getting all this really juicy stuff with the, the acknowledgement that he is a clone and that he is the son of Jango. And it's just wonderful depth to the character. And then, um, I lost my place. <laughs> uh, you know, you get a little fight between Boba and Casca, which is awesome. And, um, oh, and uh, Bo's, you know, snipe about, says, what, armor belonged to my father, and she said, you mean your donor? Uh, and he keeps calling her princess. I mean, th this scene's just great. And, you know, he's, and he makes a remark about the Empire turned Mandalore to glass and there's nothing to go back for. So, um, you know, I talked about it last week, you know, what's the galactic reputation of, or perception of what happened to Mandalore? You know, it seems like it's kind of like the uh, District 13 in Hunger Games. You know, the public thinks it's destroyed or gone, unlivable. But you know this, you know the secret few know what's really go knows what's really is going on there. And with what Bo-Katan is, you know, keeps bringing up the the retaking of Mandalore and needing to unite the Mandalorians, they you know don't need to be fighting amongst themselves. Need to show that energy against the Empire. I mean, I think this scene is really setting up season three. Which I'll get to, uh, both uh, here and um, on the next episode when I do the season review. I, I think, well, skipping ahead, now that the the season-long arc to reunite Grogu with his own kind is has been completed, the next step is <clears throat> the liberation of Mandalore and to get Mandalore back on the throne. And that should be incredible. <clears throat> and then, you know, Din also mentions here when they're forming the plan about, you know, storming off Gideon's cruiser and uh, taking that so they can use it in the uh, fight to retake Mandalore and getting the Darksaber back. 
you know, Dinjarin's his. He only cares about getting Grogu. And that's a recurring theme. Like, he does it later. You know, he tells Moff Gideon he doesn't want the Darksaber. He just wants the kid. Reiterates that to um, Bo-Katan later. So, I mean... Whatever his purpose was before with being a bounty hunter and just making his way through and holding on to his extreme religious beliefs, as, as we found out, now he just cares about Grogu's safety. Um, so when they're, yeah, you know, kind of skip through the, you know, the plan they make to storm the ship, uh, it's, you know, just a good old classic. Um, you know, here's the hologram, here's what we're going to do type scene that they do in Star Wars. You know, I did like that Pershing revealed that the Dark Troopers are third generation design and completely droid. There's no humans inside, uh, which is a callback to Dark Forces and the evolution of the Dark Troopers. So, you know, it's a callback to that. Plus, it helps set up that, yes, they're droids, so what Luke does to them later on, um, you know, doesn't go against his uh, philosophy of the, of the, at the time of, you know, not, not killing just, you know, cause it'd be different if they were stormtroopers or people inside. Um, so uh, I got to point out the hyperspace tunnel effect. You know, they did it a couple episodes back with uh, the Gideon's cruiser. But when you have Slave One and the Imperial Shuttle inside the tunnel, um, I think that's the first time in live action we've seen two ships in the same hyperspace lane. It's become pretty common in animation, uh, especially with um, uh, in Rebels. It happened a lot. Uh, but to see it, you know, them working in live action is pretty cool. You know, maybe we'll get. You know, we have yet to see it in a movie, but maybe that that will be coming. You know, like in Rogue Squadron, you could easily have several ships in there. But, but that was just really awesome that they um that they did that. I mean, how cool was it? You know, all these years after the whole well, we we stole an Imperial shuttle, so let's put you know all the main characters in the cockpit and. You know, just try to get past the um, the blockade to get down to Endor. You know, we're back in the cockpit with the with our heroes. Um, but, you know, they changed around a little bit because they're they have to pretend they're being uh, fired at by Boba and Slave One. So it's a unique situation, but it's a, you know great callback just to have the same set again. Um, and then you get the TIE fighters launching out of the cruiser, which um, I, see, I haven't had, I only watched like the first season of Battlestar Galactica, the new one. Um, I'm pretty sure I watched the old one as a kid. Um, of course, you know, Katie Sackhoff on both. So um, it might've been an homage on her account, uh, but the way the TIE fighters launch is apparently an homage and, um, think later on when uh, the dark troopers get sucked out of the of the holding bay and 
you know, they kind of have a Cylon look to them anyway. So a lot of BSG um, influence here. You know, like, so, you know, they, with a little bit of difficulty, they do manage to land inside the docking bay. And then Boba takes out the TIE fighters and jumps into hyperspace. To me, it kind of it made me think of um, kind of the plane in The Last Jedi where Chewie dropped off Ray and then immediately jumped and waited for a signal to come back. So you knew that, you know, Boba needed to stand by in case they needed to get out of there quickly because they didn't know how the, exactly how the plan would go. I mean, they were trying to get the commandeer the the ship, but it may not have worked. So then, you know, as the episode's going on, I'm like, man, Boba just split. He hasn't, he's not doing much. As it turns out, they had to remove him because if he had been on the bridge, he would have immediately recognized Luke from the, from the battle of at the, um, at the pit of Carcoon. So he couldn't have been in that scene. It would have just totally fallen apart. Um, so, you know, I think they logically got Boba out of there as best they could. Even though it would have been... Well, of course, we get to see more of him at the end. Um, you know, as they start the um, the storming of the ship, you know, the dark troopers get activated and warmed up out of cold storage and... A lot of people have enjoyed the uh, the rave music that uh, Ludwig Göransson came up with for their uh, for their theme. He tried a few different things in this episode, and not just the force theme. You know, when Luke shows up, but uh, like the closing credits had a different beat to it, and you know, worked the the main Mandalorian theme in different ways here. So I wonder if he'll, you know, this is kind of like a preview of how he's going to continue the. The evolution of the theme into season three. I will have to see. So the action as they're you know invading the ship and getting to the bridge was really cool. Uh, I do have to point out so the scene where they're going across the the walkway that you know that of course doesn't have rails, but if you fall over, there's a like an exit to the ship with a force field right there. Now, why would they design? I mean, I'm guessing it's for like transport. You know, it works later on when they're the dark troopers have to come back in. Or I guess if you're transporting something and it comes up through there. But why, why would you want to walk over like an open doorway to space? You know, if you fall through that, you're going to go through the, uh, through the force field and straight out like the stormtrooper did uh, that that design just it was kind of funny to me although it did you know work when Bo-Katan and Koska Reeves you know rocketed off and then the stormtroopers come in and they just fly back up and take them out that part was cool but I'm like why would you do that <clears throat> now as they now by the time they got to the cargo hold and the, during the firefight, you know, I'm sitting there watching and thinking, you know, man, this is really cool. Seeing all, you know, they got all the, the way they're kind of working their way through the ship. And it occurred to me, I'm like, wow, 
every member of the strike team is, is a woman. And that's really cool that they've built up, you know, Gina Carano's side and uh, what she's like in real life. The fact they've built up the female characters as well and, you know, brought in, you know, strong character like Bo-Katan from another series. You know, the fact that you have to stop yourself and be like, wait, they're all women. And it's not like they beat you over the head with that at the beginning. Like, hey, all the girls are going to get together and go invade the ship. No, it's just like, okay, you, 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 you're with me. And then it turns out it's an all-woman team. But it's not like... Um, one of the reviews I listened to and they said, you know, it's not like they're teaming up to go get the female villain while Din Djarin goes after the male villain. It, it was just they're together, they're going to take out whoever's in their way. So that part of it was really cool. And I haven't even mentioned her name yet. Of course, she's got, you know, bigger fish to fry. Mina Wen, yet again, awesome as Fennec Shand. <clears throat> and I mean, she's not just like an assassin with a sniper rifle. I mean, she can take out um, stormtroopers at close range, and it's awesome. And I'm just so glad, like, she wasn't killed off last season, and she's been able to be total badass these last three episodes. And that we're going to get more of her. Or a lot more of her. I'll get to that. <laughs> um, so as Din Djarin's making his way through the ship, you know, he stops and there's a RA-7 droid uh, just walking down the hallway. <laughs> and as I'm watching it with Lil Han, you know, he's like, what, what type of droid is that? And at the time I was like, I, I can't remember what the designation is, but when I was growing up, he was a Death Star droid. And then I told him about, you know, the original Kenner figures and that's what the set on the box. So, yes, it was cool to see Death Star droid. Oh, and then, you know, we get the whole thing with Kara's gun jamming and, you know, trying to get it to work in the in the hallway and in the turbo lift. I really thought they were setting that up so that it would malfunction again and she would get picked off and get killed. Uh, unfortunately, she didn't. Look, I mean, the, the character's fine and all, and they're doing, doing what they can with the uh, development and giving her purpose, but... It just sucks that Gina Carano is such a crappy person, because <laughs> I, I, I just have no interest in this character now, and I was, I was really hoping like, what she started doing on social media was a result of her having been killed off and not having any responsibility towards the show anymore. That that didn't happen. She made it. She might be in Rangers of the New Republic. Who knows? Um, but I just, just do not care about her. I mean, it matters what kind of a person you are in real life, and I've talked about it on previous episodes, but same with Ahsoka and Rosario Dawson. Um, I mean, you know, we've got, we, there's awesome people on the show, like Pedro Pascal and Ming-Na Wen. And then, you, you know, a couple of bad eggs just kind of ruin the character, and you're at the point where you hope to get killed off. So, so that was kind of crappy of them to, you know, hint that she might be in trouble 
because she can't get her weapons to work, but she still makes it. Moving on. Um, so uh, Den's fight with the Dark Trooper was pretty cool. And you know what I like? When they first showed up in the tragedy, all they did was rocket down and grab Grogu. You didn't see anything about their actual abilities other than flight. So you didn't know what kind of weapons they had, you know, how impervious to blasters they were, uh, what their combat was like. You know, they kept all all that from us. So that when, you know, this one fights Din Djarin, I mean, you get to, you find out like how brutal and everything they are. And you're like, holy crap, he's in real trouble. I mean, he's punching him in the face. And the only thing that stopped it, and at the same time, the other ones are punching the doors to try to get out of the holding bay. So you know how strong they are. And then you've got the other one punching him directly in the face. And if he wasn't wearing the helmet, his I mean, his skull would have been smashed in. So, you know, they made it really obvious. Um, just, you know, how brutal and they are. I thought he was going to wind up with a broken arm right at the beginning. And obviously blasters don't work that well against them, even his little... um. Oh, shoot, what's it called? His little wrist salvo. Anyway, that didn't work either. Luckily, he had the Beskar spear. He was able to rip his neck off. And then, you know, when he um, hits the lever and they all get sucked out, my first thought was, well, that's one way to get rid of them. And at least we got to see one of them fight. So that's probably it. I didn't even think about the whole they, they can fly thing, you know, because they're in space. You know, like physics of uh, space, you just assume when something gets sucked out, it's like shot so far out that can't get back. But they have jets. They fly now. Um, so finally he makes it to the, the holding cell, and there's Grogu and his little baby cuffs. And um, Gideon's there. And here's where Giancarlo Esposito is just incredible. Like he's conveyed, like the, you know, the first time we really see him in chapters seven and eight, he's very confident. He's like giving out information about the characters that they didn't think anybody else knew. And. You know, like when we've seen him on the ship this season, he's been very plotting. But here he is, you know, just casually waving the dark saber over Grogu, and he's looking very sympathetic. He's like, and it turns out it's a ruse. But I mean, Giancarlo just is able to play it so well. I mean, it makes you think. He's like, look, I just I got what I wanted. You know, just let me keep this, uh, keep this sword, you know, that sort of thing. It's just a powerful scene with him and Pedro Pascal where they're having this back and forth. I mean, it's it's been building to this where they're like just in the room face to face. You know, because they had had battles in Chapter 8, but not like this. 
And then, you know, I love his assume I know everything line. Because, I mean, the old, he's kind of like, kind of like Grand Admiral Thrawn in that sense. He's, you know, feels like he's totally in charge until Jedi show up and he doesn't understand that all fully. Um, you know, and he says, you know, he got Grogu's blood, which isn't resolved. So there's still that, like, what is the purpose of him getting the blood? Is is it for Palpatine, i.e. Snoke? Is it something else? Does he plan to infuse himself later on and give, you know, try to give himself force abilities, which would backfire in my opinion. So that, that thread is still out there for the future seasons. You know, he says he just wanted to study it, but he had to have, between him and Pershing, they had to have had a reason. So anyway, he's still playing Dinjarin a little bit, and then they, they finally have the fight, and we get to see you know, Giancarlo hinted about it in interviews for months about how he broke the props of the Darksaber during the fight scenes, and we finally get that fight scene, and it was just as incredible as I hoped it would be as I'm looking at my Funko Pop and vintage figures and Moff Gideon holding the Darksaber. Uh, I have waited so long for this, and it was awesome. I mean, just the first part when he's, you know, swinging the dark saber and Din's blocking it with the gauntlets, kind of Batman style, and you know, spills out into the hallway and finally gets a hold of the Beskar spear, and so they have a like actual like sword fight, which you got to give John Favreau credit. You know, you had. Well, we wound up having three saber wielders in this season. And, you know, Luke just, you know, used it against the Dark Troopers. But, you know, you had Ahsoka with hers, with her lightsabers, and then Gideon with the Darksaber. They're both in duels, but they found a good way without facing off against another sword wielder. Using the Beskar Spear was actually pretty brilliant. Because you could have those great great battles without having to have another opponent with us with a lightsaber hopefully it'll come to that to where we see the dark saber versus a lightsaber in another season i kind of wondered you know i thought maybe we we might get ahsoka versus uh gideon but that didn't happen don't think it will at this point the way the story is developing but yeah just loved every minute of the of, of the battle. Um, yeah, I mean, it's freaking Gus Fring fighting, fighting a Mandalorian with a Darksaber. God, it was great. Can't, can't really say more, more about it. So Din defeats him in battle. He holds the Darksaber, even though Bo-Katan said what she wanted to do. And and then having been acting sympathetic before, now Gideon is manipulative. And I think he it's I think all this is setting up an eventual 
well, in wrestling parlance, a heel turn by Bo-Katan. To where I think she... She may become the villain of the show at some point. When Din maybe really will have to defeat her and protect the rights to the Darksaber. Like, or she's just had enough and goes after him. But yes, he... By defeating Moff Gideon is the holder of the Darksaber and the heir apparent to the, th- to the throne. And then, you know, now we've got all the uh, theories about, you know, well, why did Bo-Katan just take it from Sabine Wren in uh, the last season of Rebels? My thought was that because she... Like Sabine, well, you know, you, Sabine's mother, Ursa, served under Bo-Katan in the Clone Wars and during the Siege of Mandalore. So my thinking is, as long as it's within, like, the house or the clan, you can give the sword upwards, and it's okay. But since Din Djarin is not in the House of Kree's or anything like that, that she can't take it from him. That she would have to defeat him. Um, uh, Star Wars Explained, Alex uh, had a really good thought that she just didn't know at the time when she took it from Sabine. And then what we didn't see later on was that there was kind of a revolt against her. And that's how Gideon was able to take it from her so easily. And now she understands like the true purpose of the sword and how to obtain it. So that's why she was so adamant about getting it back from Gideon. And of course that fell apart. So that's something that's going to be dealt with. Look, they explained the helmet thing already, even though in the first season we're like, why, why is he taking his helmet off? Everybody else does. They've explained that. I'm sure they'll explain what went on when she got the dark saber from Sabine. Maybe Sabine will be on the show to explain it in season three. We'll see. I'm trying to save most of my uh, speculation on season three for my season review, which will be next week with a special guest. Uh, We will get into that a lot about what we think is going to happen, but I'm just kind of setting the the tone here with things that were like brought up in this episode that I think it's leading to. So as you know, this is going on, the dark troopers are back. Um, and just the suspense and the music and everything was just building up to where you thought, holy crap, how are they going to get out of this without somebody dying? I, I will say, that's one thing. Somebody should have died, like, as far as our heroes, for just their dramatic effect. You know, last season, you know, we lost Quill in Chapter 7. We lost IG-11 in Chapter 8. There was no sacrifice this time, you know. Like, it can't, you know... When Gideon has the blaster, you thought, you know, I never thought that Costco was going to die when he shot at her because she has Beskar. Um, but apparently, some people online thought she had been taken out until we see her later in the episode. And you know, talked about Kara. Um, thankfully, it wasn't Boba or Fennec. Um, but yeah, there's just there wasn't any loss by the heroes, so. Something they could have done to up the stakes. So the tension's building, the standoff is there, and then an X-Wing flies in. 
my first thought was that it was Carson Tiva and that a bunch more X-Wings from a New Republic squadron were about to jump out of hyperspace following him and that they were there to help out, you know, a la uh, Chapter 10 when Carson and Trevor Wolf showed up to save them from the spiders. And then once the X-Wing started to dock and Grogu had that look, I started to squirm. And I was like, it's Luke. And Lohan was watching with me and he's like, it's Luke? I was like, yeah, Luke Luke came in his X-Wing. And then we just started freaking out. Because then, and then once he walked down the hallway and you saw him on the monitor, you knew what was what was up. So, like the first time we ever shared a geek out moment was the Darth Maul reveal in Solo. Um, but this this was great. We, we just got so excited when we found it. It was Luke. Because I, I talked about it last week. I thought. My guess was Quinlan Voss because I thought that um, yeah, it, it would make sense. I, I just didn't think they would go big with Luke. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad they did because it still makes sense. But I didn't think they were going to go there. I thought they were going to try to separate the movies a little bit. Um, so I thought it would be you know, somebody who had managed to survive all these years like Quinlan Voss. Um, but no, I mean, it was Luke and I mean, this scene was awesome. And, uh, to see people's reactions, like, um, well, it's, it's still Saunders. I mean, the dude is a Luke fanatic. You know, he's, he's like me. He was just enthralled by the green lightsaber back in the day. Uh, Nancy Schwartz, uh, loves Luke. Um, her reaction was great. Uh, just to see them, like, absolutely revere him uh, and just have that, like, that pure emotion. I didn't record, we were watching, we, we watched in the dark, so it wouldn't have been done any good to record our reaction, but uh, little Han and I were just so happy to watch the whole thing unfold. Um, but, and, and they built it up really well. You know, you, like, first you see him on the monitor, and and then they, and then one reaction shot where Gideon's like, holy crap, it's a Jedi. We're screwed. Um, um, but then, you know, they cut to the actual shot in the hallway and it's, it's a green lightsaber and you see the gloved hand and you see the his other hand is bare. You, you know it's Luke by this point. But they keep building up to where he finally unhood, you know, takes off his hood. They almost could have gotten away with keeping everything to the monitors until he got off the elevator, off the turbo lift. And, you know, one, if that had been the first time you see him in color, that would have had a little more impact, I think, but it still worked out the way they just kept building up the crescendo of the reveal. And, of course, a lot of comparisons already to the... Once he got off the elevator, they're like, his hallway scene versus Vader's in Rogue One. I like the difference there. 
and again, I mentioned, you know, because the Dark Trooper is the third generation, he's, he's only taking out droids. So it's not like, you know, crazy death against stormtroopers. You know, he's just taking out droids, which to me made it feel more like when Anakin, i.e. Darth Vader, went to Mustafar to take out the Separatist commanders. And he, you know, he was taking out a lot of battle droids, and then he took out Newt Gunray and all the rest of the the leaders. Luke mowing through the droids reminded me more, more of that than Rogue One, but still awesome. And then we get the quick little cut where you know Gideon, you know, tries to kill Casca, tries to go. Um, Grogu doesn't work, tries to kill himself, doesn't work. So he he is captured. He and Pershing are both in custody uh, and are alive. So we'll see where that goes. Glad they didn't kill off <laughs> off Gideon. I want him, I want more of him. Love the love that character as evil as he is. Uh, so now we get uh, we get our first look at Luke, and it's not Sebastian Stan. They de-aged Mark Hamill. Um, he was actually played by Max Lloyd-Jones. who's actually only 29. I looked it up. He's the right age to play that uh, Luke at this point in his life. And I thought the de-aging was good, plus he looks about five years older than he did in Jedi. And the way he's very stoic and calm and everything... It's very much in line with the way uh, he, and I've talked about it before, in the Battlefront 2 game, uh, the Pilio mission, where um, you know he has a whole scene with um, Del Mico and uh, just some great dialogue there about uh, a choice to be better, and Del's like, why'd you help me? And he's like, because you asked. And also the Shattered Empire comic, which takes place right after Return of the Jedi, where he goes on a mission with Poe's mom, Cheryl Bay. Um, Luke, after he saved his father and knows that he became one with the Force, Luke kind of just has this calm about him all of a sudden. And he kind of defines his purpose of... You know, he, he understands now he is a Jedi. He saved his father. Now he can, you know, like, learn more about the Force and go out to help others. You know, it's not so much about the killing. Like, in Battlefront 2, he kind of regrets the stormtroopers he had to kill. So this, what we see of Luke in these few minutes is very much like... Um, the post-Jedi appearances we've seen of him in the new canon. So I, I do appreciate the consistency there. I thought that was great. Now, I think it's important to mention, because everybody's like already freaking out, like, oh, great, Grogu's going to the, the Jedi Temple. He's uh, going to be there when uh, Ben Solo turns to the dark side and the temple's burned down and everything. No, that doesn't happen for about 20 years, Okay. Um, here's what I think. Luke only talks about, you know, he's going to help Grogu master his abilities and protect him. And then based on the dialogue in Last Jedi, 
you know, Luke says when he saw the abilities in Ben, that's when he gathered him and other students and created a training temple. That hasn't happened yet because Ben is only about four right now. I don't think that happens at least... I don't think it happens for about 10 years. Um, just based on... Because the, they did the Rise of Kylo Ren comic book. The, the kids were older when they started at the temple. So I think... You know... And, and then you also consider the Rise of Skywalker where we had the flashback to when he trained Leia. That probably just finished within the last year or so. Um, so, I mean, and Grogu sent out the message from Tython. Luke probably just heard it, said, okay, this person needs my help. I'll, I'll you know, I can at least train him to protect himself. So that's probably all he's going to do. He's just going to, he's going to help Grogu master his abilities and be able to protect himself. You know, if that takes a year or or two, he's not necessarily training him to be a Jedi. He's training him to be able to use the Force for knowledge and defense. Probably. So I don't... I think he will return to Din Djarin way before Luke starts the training temple with Ben. That, that's my, my, my thought on that. Um, so, it, it, we get, I mean, it, it just the, the amazing scene that made, made me cry when, you know, Den saying his goodbye to Grogu giving his permission for him to go. And, you know, he takes his helmet off so that Grogu can see him, you know, let me look on you with my own eyes. I mean, the parallels there. Um, just an incredible scene, you know, he's uh, just so they can look at each other. And Grogu touches his face. And I mean, it's probably the first time he's had his face touched since his parents. Like in that flashback where we see them die. Um... It's the first time he smiled at anybody in that long. I mean, it's just an incredibly powerful scene uh, that brought me to tears, um, especially as a parent. Um, and also, you know, he never turns his head to face the others. So I'm guessing right after that scene, he put his helmet back on so that Kara and Bo and Casca and Fennec never saw him. So Luke and Grogu were the only two, and then R2. But, you know, just just an incredible, incredible scene. Grogu, Grogu's still holding onto his leg like he did in Chapter 8. Um, you know, then, then we get this, I didn't even think about R2. I mean, he was on the X-Wing, obviously, so R2 shows up. And you, you got to wonder what are his thoughts. Like, it'd be funny if it, like, can, canon, canon, per canon, <laughs> he said, wow, it's a baby Yoda. You know, it'd be funny if he actually said that. Um, and there's already wild theories that 
R2 was the one who saved Grogu from the temple, but we don't know where R2 was at the time. He's probably with Padme. Um, I don't know. I don't know where R2 was. I, I, I doubt R2 saved Grogu, but... Anyway, they, they make a connection. Grogu probably feels more comfortable going with them now. Um, and also wondered, did Kara? I mean, Kara and Luke were both at the Battle of Endor. She had to know who he is. Yeah, she probably was just being polite. I don't know. Um, anyway, so, you know, Luke walking back to the turbo lift and Grogu looking back over his shoulder. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel to the end of chapter eight when Din flies off with Grogu for the first time. And it, of course that matched when he was flown off as a, as a foundling. Um, but this time, you know, he's, he's being walked away instead of flown away. So it's like more comforting perhaps and less, less jarring. But just the final shot, you know, is, you know, Din's nodding in approval and they're all on the turbo lift and it closes and that's the end of the season. And we've completed this arc. Um, I mean, if if the show ended right now, it would be satisfying. But... Obviously, you know, they've announced season three, so there's more to come. I mean, it's possible we go an entire season without Grogu, which is, you know, bold from a marketing standpoint because, I mean, the child is everywhere. Um, I mean, they don't know it, but Little Han and the Padawan are both getting a Grogu from (laughs) Build-A-Bear. So uh, Santa's bringing those. He told me, yes, Santa's going to bring those uh, in just a couple of days. So, you know, know, everybody loves Baby Yoda. Um, I mean, he will be back. I I have no doubt that once either Grogu will complete his training or, or just enough to survive and, you know, be responsible for his own own abilities or something happens with Dan to where Grogu senses that he has to go back to him. You know, they will be reunited. That has to happen. And just at what point, we don't know. I mean, it may be half season, maybe a full season. But I think they're going off the strength of the franchise at this point to where Grogu doesn't necessarily have to come back immediately. But we'll see. But again, I'll talk more about season three speculation on, on the season review. Um, but there's a lot of loose threads they left here that can be pushed forward. Um, but just kudos to John Favreau for what he's done for this show. Um, to bring in you know, familiar and new characters and just weave it all together in a story that it makes a lot of sense and it isn't fan service. I mean, it's, it's the natural progression of the, what would have happened in the galaxy after five years from what we saw in return of the Jedi. 
was bummed there was no concept art, which also gave it that finality to where like, no, this is it. They're playing more somber <laughs> closing credits music and it's just black screen with all the credits. But they were setting us up because they were, there was a post credit scene <laughs> um, that I didn't know about because obviously when I got up, I we went straight to watching this. We do not get on Twitter. Uh, I don't want to be spoiled. So as soon as the credits started. Well, I waited long enough to see that Mark Hamill's name was in the credits. And then I immediately got on Twitter and, and uh, Trisha Barr said, there's a post credit, there's a post credit scene. So immediately I told little, I said, cause he, he like, after we finished the episode, he usually goes on YouTube or something. Um, he, he's obsessed with those Minecraft, uh, like those videos where other people play video games like Minecraft. Santa may also be bringing a Minecraft. <laughs> um, but so I said, don't touch the controller yet. We, um, th there's more, there's more. So then we see the twin sons. I'm like, oh, where's this going? Um, then it pans over to Boba, uh, uh, to Jabba's palace. And he didn't recognize it at first. It's like, it's Jabba's palace. Something's going down. And then we find out that Bib Fortuna survived. Um, yeah, the, the pit of Carcoon. Which you know, in, in the in the legends, uh, I think he survived, but his brain was extracted by the Bomar monks, who are those mechanical spider things at the at Java's palace. Like when the big doors uh, come up at the very beginning with three PO and R two, and yeah, so that that was what happened to him in the books. So I was like, yeah, everybody's like, oh, why are they so fat? But he just got indulgent and gluttonous, you know, taking over Jabba's operations. He's had five years to get complacent, you know. Um, and, um, see, Matthew Wood played him, and he also played him in uh, episode one uh, when, you know, he was in the pod racing with uh, Jabba. And this is a cool detail, and I can't, I can't remember who said this on Twitter. The staff that Bib Fortuna is holding was the staff that came with the action figure in the Kenner line, like all those years ago in 83. But it wasn't something that he held in the movies. Um, so it was just uh, something they added to him. But then they put it, they have him holding it in this, which, you know, just incredible detail by John Favreau. So then Fennec shows up, starts blasting everybody, frees the uh, slave girl. Which, you know, of course the whole, you know, always keep a slave thing, but a, a dancer or whatever. But it just seemed kind of weird that, I mean, Jabba wouldn't care, but why would Bib Fortuna keep another Twi'lek intentionally as a, uh, as a slave dancer? They could have mixed up and made a different species, but anyway, it worked because uh, I loved like, you know, Fennec being nice enough to like let her free. And then Boba shows up, kills Bib Fortuna, and then takes the, takes the throne. Um, 
and, and the the last shot where um, he sits down and then Finnick grabbed a big bottle of Spotska takes a swig and sits there with him. She got this big damn smile on her face. And then we find out the book of Boba Fett is the mystery spinoff series that we're getting in December of 2021. Um, and they confirmed that this past Monday, like right uh, you know after the weekend. Um, yeah, I'm just, that's going to be a lot of fun. But I, I got to give a shout out to Ming-Na Wen because, I mean, she, she's a self-professed Star Wars fan. And, I mean, there's been no secret. And, you know, she's done Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., so she's been in the Disney realm at M- Milan, of course. But I'm just watching her in that scene where, like, after she shoots everybody and she goes to get the uh, the booze and just sits there on the side of the throne. You could just tell that she was having so much fun filming that and it made me think of when they did the behind the scenes of the phantom menace and uh they're doing a take of the big lightsaber battle and then ewan like gets knocked off and lands on one of the padded mats and he just he just you know like get all excited and then when they yell cut he's like says to the guy next to him he's like did you want to be in star wars he said two f and right <laughs> yeah cut I mean, he was a Star Wars fan too. You know, his uncle was Dennis Lawson who played Wedge and he was so excited to be in the movie, but Ming-Na Wen just, she demonstrated that on screen. You could tell she was like, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I'm going to be in Star Wars and I'm going to be in my own series. And you, it's Ming-Na Wen and Tamora Morrison starring in a Star Wars series. Two people of color. Um, it's going to be... No, besides Dave and John, is that Robert Rodriguez is executive producing it? You know, he did. Um, he directed the tragedy when they showed up and started kicking ass. Even if it, oh. yeah, I just kind of wait for that series. Like, give us Cad Bane and Hondo Anaka and Bosk and just all these other, like Crimson Dawn if they're still around, and just bring us all this meaty underworld stuff. Can't wait to see where this goes. Uh, considering they've already started filming it, they're they're starting to film Andor and Kenobi. Um, you know, Mandalorian season three is going to be filmed. I mean, it may be the next live action series we get because Bad Batch is at some point in 2021. But yeah, the book of both that is going to be so much fun. It's just a great time to be a Star Wars fan. I've said that, but we're getting, we're, we're so blessed to be getting all of this. We just, I mean, uh, season two of The Mandalorian is what I pictured the fourth Star Wars movie to be like when it's like 1984, 85, and we don't know what else we're getting, you know. I didn't know that much about episodes one through three yet. Other than, you know, I knew Roman numerals, so it's like something's got to be up because we just watched four, five, and six. But I was thinking, man, if they ever did one, they need to make a sequel to Return of the Jedi and have this and this and this and like Boba Fett come back and, um, you know, Luke doing some stuff. That's what happened in this season. And it was so great. 
and we're going to get more more of the same. Um, I'm sure they're going to surprise us with some, some other stuff. So this episode was amazing. Season was amazing. I'll, I'll I'll talk more about it on another episode. But I've, I've <laughs> taken up a lot of your time talking about this one. But there was just so much to get into. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I, I enjoy talking about Star Wars. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk about Star Wars. Um, thank you to everyone who tunes in each week. And thank you to him. Thank you for tuning in for the first time, if, if you did. But you can follow me on social media, at Radio Dakar, R-A-D-I-O-D-Q-A-R, on Twitter and Instagram. All the Radio Dakar episodes, uh, previous episode reviews, uh, interviews. Uh, they're on most major podcast platforms, Anchor, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast. Uh, but I will be back with more. Uh, for the season two wrap up, the High Republic reviews are coming up, the Bad Batch, and more. Until then, may the force be with you. <laughs>